I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan nonprofit chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. The Senate of the United States is on the verge of holding the impeachment trial of President Trump, and presiding over that trial will be Chief Justice John Roberts. To talk about the Chief Justice's role in the impeachment trial and the history of Chief Justices and presidential impeachments, we're joined by two of America's leading experts on impeachment and on the Constitution. Kenneth Starr is of counsel at the Lanier Law Firm. Judge Starr has argued 36 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He served as Solicitor General of the United States, as a circuit judge for the D.C. Circuit, and as independent counsel during the Clinton presidency from 1994 to 1999. Ken, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure, Jeff. Thank you. And Joan Biskupic is a CNN legal analyst who has covered the Supreme Court for 25 years. She's previously been an editor-in-charge for legal affairs at Reuters and a Supreme Court correspondent for The Washington Post and USA Today. Her most recent book, The Chief, is a biography of Chief Justice John Roberts. Joan, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thank you, Jeff. Let's jump right in. Joan, what is the most contested question Chief Justice Roberts is likely to decide in the upcoming trial of President Trump, and how is the chief likely to decide it? Well, as things stand, it could be a question having to do with witnesses and evidence, given the uh, dispute between House Democrats and Senate Republicans at this time. As you know, his one responsibility in the Constitution is that he presides when the president is subject to an impeachment trial. But that's all the Constitution says. And under Senate rules, it's actually a very limited role. He's not sitting as a judge. He's not sitting as a juror. He's sitting as a presiding officer. And according to the Senate rules, he does not have a vote, but he can be asked to decide questions of evidence, uh, whether it's relevant or material. So one of the House managers, uh, as they're, they're called when they bring over the articles of impeachment, could try to put to the chief some question about witnesses. Now, in 1999, when Re William Rehnquist was in the chair, those questions about witnesses were worked out by the Senate majority. And I would think, given the tensions that are brewing now, that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is going to try to control that question and that Chief Justice John Roberts would be happy to have him control it. And finally, Jeff, if he does make any kind of determination on witnesses or evidence per the 1986 rules, he can be overturned by a majority of the Senate. Because the bottom line is that this is the Senate's show. The Supreme Court has ruled that the Senate has the sole responsibility to decide whether a president is convicted or acquitted. And John Roberts will be sitting up there on that dais trying to make sure the proceedings run well, but not taking a heavy hand. Ken, do you agree with Joan that the chief is unlikely to make rulings that he knows could might be overruled by a majority of the Senate? And when it comes to witnesses, could you imagine Senate Democrats asking the chief to compel witnesses after the majority has decided not to hold them and him making a substantive ruling or not? 
Yes, I think he will make a quite conscious uh, effort to, number one, follow history and tradition. And so Joan is absolutely right. The Clinton model uh, and Chief Justice Rehnquist, for whom Chief Justice John Roberts clerked uh, almost a half century ago, a little less, is going to be his model. Uh, and in turn, Chief Justice Rehnquist used as his model Chief Justice Salmon P. Chase during the only prior impeachment that made it to the United States Senate of a sitting uh, president in the trial of Andrew Johnson. Uh, I would uh, agree with the thrust of what uh, Jones said with perhaps uh, a a bit of a tweak. And the tweak uh, would be because of his sense that this is the Senate's sole power. He should not be making any decision, I'm projecting here, the chief would say to himself, I cannot make any decision that might have a substantive effect, an outcome on the substantive judgment of acquittal uh, or of, of, of guilty. This is for the Senate. It's the prerogative of the Senate. And thus we know from the Clinton impeachment final point, uh, and this is uh, exactly Jones' uh, point, it was the Senate that worked it out. Now, there, there was cheerful agreement. There were 100 Uh, senators going in, uh, in contrast to what is likely to be the case now, who uh, agreed no witnesses going in. Then when the issue emerged again on into the trial after the impeachment managers had presented and the president's very able lawyers had presented, then it was put to a vote. uh, And the vote was overwhelmingly 70 to 30, something like that. Overwhelmingly, we do not want live witnesses, depositions and so forth. So the other thing is that the chief will be aware that there's going to be a lot of negotiation going on between the House managers and the Senate leadership within the Senate itself. And his job is to stay above the fray. Uh, You both mentioned the Clinton trial. And Joan, you just wrote a fascinating article for CNN.com based on your study of the files of Chief Justice Rehnquist. The piece was called How the Last Chief Justice Handled an Impeachment Trial of the President of the United States. Among many fascinating uh, nuggets, you found that Senator Harkin had sent a letter to Rehnquist asking him to adopt limits on the House manager's questioning of potential witnesses, and Chief Justice Rehnquist begged off. Tell us more about that incident and about other things you learned from the Rehnquist files. Yes, it was it was quite a find because uh, the the actual records from that uh, impeachment trial are under seal for about fifty years. But in Rehnquist's personal files uh, out of the Stanford campus in the Hoover Institution, I was able to find his correspondence while he was presiding uh, over the trial. And uh, as both of you know. Uh, Bill Rehnquist, uh, whatever you thought of him on on the law, he did have that whimsical side. So, of course, he showed up in a black robe that was decked out in gold stripes that he had affixed to his robe, um, uh, to his sleeves years earlier, inspired by a character in Gilbert and Sullivan's Iolanthe. And he also quoted from Iolanthe when he wrote to people to say how it how it went. He said, I did nothing in particular and did it very well. But going to the substantive things I found in his uh, in his files, you're exactly right that at one point when he was encouraged to uh, actually uh, make more of a substantive ruling to intercede, he said uh, he did not want to, and he said he would claim authority only when its exercise was clearly warranted. 
And the one time, probably the, the most notable ruling uh, beyond what was already prearranged uh, when, Ren- when Chief Justice Rehnquist was dealing with the House managers and the senators had to do with um, uh, the, the fact that the House managers kept referring in their arguments to the senators as jurors. And that was another time when um, Democrats objected, saying they shouldn't be calling us mere jurors. And uh, uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist agreed. He sided with them, saying that the Senate is not simply a jury in this matter. It's a court in this case. So he he was trying to, it, when it was time to intercede, he did. At other times, he stepped back. But uh, Jeff, you know what it's like across the street at the Supreme Court. You know, it's a it, there are no cameras uh, allowed over there. The justices do most of their work in enclosed chambers. So when William Rehnquist came to preside, it was, you know, the first time that he was in such a prominent spotlight. And he got so many letters from people ranging from things having to do with politics and, and his uh, voice on the law to the fact that he would stand up intermittently during the uh, uh, the proceedings to exercise his bad back. So people were writing in from all corners of the country to t- tell him how to fix his back problem. <laughs> Many thanks for those wonderful tidbits and for the great expressions of concern by uh, fellow uh, back sufferers. Um, the Iolanthe quotation is great. We the people listeners, I have to confess, I am a, a GNS uh, fan. It's a, it's a private vice that I have. So here's the homework for the week. The line that Rehnquist was quoting comes from Iolanthe, as Joan said. I'm going to read you the two stanzas. And if you can write in with the final stanzas to me, then I'll send you a copy of my book, Conversations with RBG. Here it goes. When Wellington thrashed Bonaparte, as every child can tell, the House of Peers throughout the war did nothing in particular and did it very well. So tell me what comes next and you get the RBG book. Okay, Ken, you had a central role in the impeachment of President Clinton as the independent counsel and you watched Chief Justice Rehnquist preside carefully. What struck you about his performance? What moments jumped out and what do you think were his most important uh, substantive rulings? I think he had read uh, Hamilton's Federalist 78, even though this was not a classic judicial role. Um, Colonel Hamilton said in describing the federal judiciary, and again, this is an extraordinary, unusual role for the Chief Justice of the United States, that this is to be the least dangerous branch where power or will is exercised elsewhere, but only judgment. So I think that Chief Justice Rehnquist, steeped as he was in the trial of uh, President Johnson, and aware that uh, President uh, Johnson's trial was obviously enormously acrimonious, there were 11 articles of impeachment, the reconstruction of the South was at issue, and and as a serious, if if avocational student of history, Chief Justice Rehnquist had to be aware, and perhaps his files show this, that Chief Justice Chase came under considerable criticism after the fact that he was somehow nudging the Senate along in favor of acquittal. Well, that would be to Chief Justice Roberts now, unconscionable. How can I conduct myself so that no fair-minded person can say, I was putting a thumb on the scales? And of course, that's important for any judge in a judicial capacity to be fair-minded and open-minded and to listen with respect and so forth. So I think there will be this sense 
the less I do, so the, the quip from Gilbert and Sullivan that Chief Justice Rehnquist so colorfully articulated and embraced in this context is I need to do very little and refer matters back to the Senate. This is a matter that's entrusted to the judgment of the Senate. I think we may hear that over and over again if, as I expect, there's a lot of acrimony and a failure to agree as there uh, happily, there was not that profound, profound failure to the contrary. During Clinton, uh, as the more we learn about the Clinton impeachment, the more we know that there was, even though the atmosphere was very acrimonious, there was an enormous amount of harmony among the all 100 senators. There was not this deep partisan divide. A striking uh, difference indeed. Uh, Joan, what could be surprising about uh, the kind of questions Chief Justice Roberts might be asked to rule on? You could imagine questions of executive privilege that some senators might try to take up to the Supreme Court in the middle of the trial if it lasted more than a couple of days. Uh, how could the chief rule on or sidestep those questions? And, and what are the curveballs that he might face? Sure. In fact, uh, just to close the loop on the reference to the uh, impeachment trial of President Johnson uh, when Chief Justice Chase presided, I believe that Chief Justice Chase broke ties among senators twice. But that was that was very controversial. And the rules since then definitely do not give the presiding officer any power of a vote. So that's just to comment on the fact that, yes, Chief Justice Rehnquist probably thought that uh, uh, Chief Justice Chase had gone a little bit too far, and senators at the time were quite torn on that. But now, uh, Jeff, you raise an excellent question because you already hear the talk over, you know, would someone like a, a John Bolton, who knows presumably knows so much about went down, what went down with the Ukrainian phone call and dealings of President Trump, would he be called to testify? He's saying that he he would. He would be willing to testify in the Senate. Of course, there's great controversy over whether they would call him and, and whether President Trump would object. But say President Trump then tried to assert executive privilege, that, uh, you know, that isn't a question that could be resolved probably within the Senate impeachment venue. But I think it would be, uh, it, it's definitely unprecedented to have this side question then to go up to the Supreme Court on executive privilege while the Senate trial was underway. And I, I want to remind uh, our listeners of uh, what, what I like to refer to as the other Nixon case, not the definitive 1974 U.S. v. Nixon case on executive privilege, but the 1993 Supreme Court case of Nixon versus United States, which involved a federal judge by the name of Walter Nixon, who had been impeached by the House and then was undergoing a Senate trial and Judge Nixon was complaining about the way the Senate was taking evidence, saying you're, uh, the Senate was just using a committee rather than having all 100 senators uh, take all the, all the uh, evidence to be heard. And he took his case to the U.S. Supreme Court and said, you know, Supreme Court, you should tell the Senate how it must properly run an impeachment trial. And the Senate... 
I mean, pardon me, the Supreme Court, uh, in a majority opinion by Chief Justice William Rehnquist, said no. Uh, the, the, the Senate has the sole responsibility on whether a president is convicted or acquitted and the sole responsibility for how it runs its trial, and we're not going to intervene. Now, someone could say, someone could assert, uh, some sort of argument that said, well, but it would just challenge all sense of fairness uh, for the Senate to run a trial without witnesses. I don't think that's going to be an, an argument that would have traction at the U.S. Supreme Court, but but you don't know. We're in such a strange, unpredictable time. But that is the kind of question, Jeff, that could tie up things uh, if Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell doesn't uh, doesn't wield a pretty heavy hand here, and I, I have a feeling uh, he'll tr- certainly try. Many thanks for telling We the People listeners about the Walter Nixon case, which is the central one. Um, in that case, there were concurring opinions by Justices Souter and White who suggested that if the Senate flipped a coin in an impeachment trial, really refused to hold any trial at all, possibly there might be some judicial review, but short of that, no. Uh, Ken, can you imagine any situation in which Uh, a trial would be so abbreviated, like a motion to dismiss on the first day without going through any testimony at all, uh, that might spark a judicial challenge along those lines that it basically didn't count as a Senate trial or not? It might spark a judicial challenge, but I think that the challenge uh, would be uh, dismissed and would not eventually be addressed on the substance or on the merits by the Supreme Court. And I think the music, as it were, of the Walter Nixon case is very much to the effect that we are simply not going to interfere, we being the Supreme Court or the judiciary more generally, with the prerogatives of the Senate. And so to bring that back to the invocation of executive privilege, uh, I believe the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts, will say we have uh, an uh, assertion of executive privilege, uh, what say ye? And turns it back over to the Senate. The Senate may feel free to go into executive session or to debate it. Uh, Because that is such a substantive determination, my prediction, I may be wrong, is that the Chief Justice would not rule on it, but would refer it to the Senate for resolution. Very interesting suggestion that it would be the Senate itself that would rule on executive privilege, exercising its power to make substantive constitutional decisions. Joan, any uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist was a, a scholar of impeachment. He wrote a well-received book on the uh, Chase and Johnson impeachments. Uh, chief Justice Roberts is a scholar of history. He reads biographies of other chiefs. Any sense of how he is preparing for this trial? You know, I think that's exactly right. That he 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 is a student of history. Uh, before he turned to law at at Harvard, he thought he would get a PhD in history. And I presume he's intrigued right now by the historic nature of what's about to happen, you know, only the third U.S. president subjected to a Senate impeachment trial. Uh, but, you know, the Supreme Court already has a very packed calendar of controversial cases to be heard in 2020. So I think he's going to try to be as prepared as possible, work with the rules. You know, John Roberts is incredibly rule-oriented, and Chief Justice Rehnquist found himself turning to the parliamentarian in the Senate nonstop back in 1999. And I'm sure John Roberts is already trying to get up to speed on just the kinds of rules that will shape this trial. Also, to familiarize himself with the senators themselves. The last time he cared uh, specifically who was in the Senate was in 2005 when he was nominated to be chief justice. And I'm sure he was aware of every single senator then. But uh, 
It's been 15 years and things have changed. So he's going to he's going to want to know, you know, who's there in the chamber when they all, you know, are arrayed at those wooden desks before him. Uh, so I think a lot of preparation, a lot of homework in that regard. And, you know, he's lucky because uh, some of the uh, aides who were part around back in 1999 and helped Chief Justice Rehnquist are still in the orbit of the federal judiciary so he can tap into people for advice. Ken, you've expressed uh, skepticism both about the substance of the articles of impeachment against President Trump as well as about the procedure by which they were voted uh, during the Clinton impeachment. Was the impeachment better served by your report, which laid out the factual findings comprehensively and what, if anything, could be done at this point to cure whatever defects you see in the procedural or substantive articles? Well, the one advantage, if there was one, in the prior proceeding during the Clinton uh, is that the evidence was all before the Senate. Uh, Some of it obviously was not in the public domain, but an enormous amount uh, to many, a bewildering and distressing uh, amount, was in the public domain. And the standard that we followed in the process of completing the report and then submitting all of the supplemental information and the like was, this needs to be proven, this being perjury and obstruction of justice, really, not just beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt whatsoever. Uh, And so I think there was a sense that the facts have been established. Now, what do we glean or what do we conclude from those facts? And that was part of the power that I think that the 100 senators, the insight they brought to bear, we don't want any more witnesses. (laughs) We've seen enough. We've heard enough. We have enough. uh, Let's move to the uh, argument phase. In contrast, briefly, we, of course, have a record that, in my judgment, is really quite thin uh, with... uh, Obviously, witnesses such as John Bolton, who've not been heard from. And we can get into, well, why is that? Why could it have gone a bit slower, more deliberately on the part of the House, et cetera? And that becomes quickly a political dispute as well as a legal and procedural uh, dispute. But here's the fundamental point. The record going to the United States Senate is relatively thin with a number of unanswered questions. That, it seems to me, gives rise to a reasonable articulation of, well, we need to fill out the record. And of course, the response, my final point is, excuse me, that was really the job of the House of Representatives. We're here to try the case on the basis of these articles. That does not mean we're going to be reaching out and calling in witnesses who the House didn't see fit to call in the first instance. So it quickly becomes, as we know, a political battle. Joan, there is uh, a sense that this impeachment is more partisan than all the ones that have come before, even though they were pretty partisan, too. There's likely to be very little, if any, partisan crossover. Uh, Roberts is acutely concerned about uh, the nonpartisan legitimacy of the judiciary. What can he do to preserve that in the middle of this most partisan of all settings? Well, you know, the premise of your question is exactly right, that John Roberts gives very few public speeches, but when he does, he has a singular message, and that's uh, to shield the court's reputation and its integrity. And, you know, just last fall, he said, when you live in a politically polarized environment, people tend to see everything you do in those terms, including the Supreme Court, however it's acting, and including him as chief justice. And he, you know, he asserted that, you know, the court will continue to decide cases according to the Constitution and uh, laws without fear or favor. 
And we're all aware, and I'm sure your listeners are aware of how he uh, issued a rebuke to President Trump at that uh, last um, a year ago, November, when uh, he said, uh, you know, there are no Obama judges, there are no Trump judges. Well, you know, that's a that's a hard thing to assert when when Washington's so polarized and the court itself is polarized with five Republican appointees who vote mostly conservative and four Democratic appointees who most vote mostly liberal. So he's going to pro- want to project impartiality and fairness any way he can. And I think that the hardest part for him uh, could probably come on the witnesses. Uh, just to remind everyone, there were three witnesses who the Senate heard from in 1999, but it was videotaped testimony and it was something worked out between uh, the majority and minority leaders. And and in fact, uh, William Rehnquist wrote to former Oregon uh, Senator uh, Mark Hatfield saying, I have been introduced to the ways of the Senate in a big way. Since there have been no live witnesses, though, there has been very little for the presiding officer to do. But it is interesting to see the Senate at work. And he, he later even said, uh, you know, it was quite the culture shock to go from the very structured world of the Supreme Court across the street to uh, what he said was the free form, for lack of better word, uh, uh, approach of the U.S. Senate, so I, I also I think that the chief is going to be on guard for questions involving these witnesses and evidence, and and do what he can to uh, sidestep those. But I think he's he's already he also is acknowledging that he has to be ready for just about anything in this kind in this atmosphere. And for those of us who were around in 1999, and uh, you know, Ken obviously played a key role there. But I, I was covering it when I was you know working for the Washington Post at the time, and I would have never thought that 20 years and 21 years into the future, I would think that something all the more <laughs> controversial and polarized was about to unfold. Nor I, uh, having followed it too. Ken, you did play a central role in the in the last impeachment trial. Based on your experience, what advice would you give to the senators who are deciding whether or not to hear witnesses but think that the House did a poor job? How should they resolve the most contested questions of the trial that they will soon face? Well, notwithstanding the deep partisan nature of impeachment, the founding generation understood that there would be a partisanship, and deeply so, warned against uh, undue uh, passion carrying the day and so forth. Uh, I would say that uh, even in this uh, deeply divided and acrimonious time, the oath that you're about to take and will have taken uh, calls upon you to be, quote, impartial. So my advice, which is so countercultural to Washington generally, but especially to the political branches more specifically, is do your best to not make too many substantive comments uh, or pejorative comments uh, uh, outside uh, the chamber. Uh, There's nothing that prevents uh, a United States senator from uh, going out and saying, uh, what's being presented is garbage or what's being uh, done is terrible, etc. That That is going to, especially early on in the trial or the 
presentations is going to strike a fair-minded person as, gosh, that sounds pretty partial. And you just took an oath to be impartial. Hard to do, but I think nonetheless, that should be the goal. That would be my advice to my senator. And he said, well, wait, I'm up for a re-election or whatever. I'd say, well, all I can do is advise you as to the nature of your obligation under the Constitution. You just took an oath to be an impartial adjudicator of this most fundamental question in our democracy. And Joan, based on your study of Chief Justice Roberts and your in your great biography, The Chief, and also of your study of the of the Clinton impeachment trial, what advice would you give to the chief about pitfalls to avoid and benefits to gain? Well, far be it from me to advise the Chief Justice of the United States, but I know that he will likely follow the lead of his mentor, uh, Bill Rehnquist, in a couple ways, not just in terms of how he presides, but in terms of what he brings over there. Uh, you know, it, it's right across the street, and he'll he'll likely be driven over, just as uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist was driven over to a, a nice, easy entrance to go in without a lot of fanfare. Uh, but uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist brought a briefcase full of uh, uh, court papers and some playing cards and plenty <laughs> to occupy himself because... If, if we know anything about the U.S. Senate, it goes into recess nonstop. And that's what happened so many times back in 1999. This was a five-week trial, but if you took all the time that they were actually, you know, meeting in public, it, it, it would definitely would not stretch uh, that far uh, because they, they'd constantly have to have, you know, what, what they say, let's have a quorum call while they worked out things behind the scenes. So Rehnquist, who was so such a model of efficiency and always on the clock uh always had something to do on the side and uh and if he couldn't if he couldn't preoccupy himself with the cases that the justices were hearing in that january sitting he'd pull out a set of cards and play poker that's great <laughs> uh do you know if chief justice Le- uh, roberts uses a laptop can he do some uh, telecommuting from across well, the street well i know he writes out his when he's drafting his opinions he writes in longhand uh because of court security i'm not sure how uh how much they're going to want to you know how much the telecommuting goes but i would think just again for efficiency's sake he'll have enough materials with him he does a lot of his uh, his reading also still in uh, hard form hard copy form um you know he's oh and here's the other thing just uh, it's he is is a uh, he he has taken advantage of some of the modern uh, devices of our world, but he, as I said, he's still writing on a, a legal pad uh, with a pen. But right, he's I consider him a very young chief justice. When he was appointed in two thousand five, he was only fifty and the youngest uh, chief justice in two hundred years. Uh, but he's in the middle of all this. He'll be just turning sixty five uh, on J- January twenty seventh. So he'll he'll uh, he'll bridge kind of the, the two worlds of the court and the Senate and uh, and the old fashioned work of the the Supreme Court and trying to nonetheless keep busy with the number of devices and aids that he brings with him. Wonderful. Well, all we the people listeners, uh, I'm sure, will join me in wishing him a happy birthday on January 27th. <laughs> final final thoughts. Ken, what, what, what are you most looking for in this trial based on your experience with the last one? And what uh, homework would you give to We the People listeners, a particularly illuminating book or article or artifact that you think might teach them something they didn't already know about impeachment? Yes, I think one of the most fascinating uh, books, in addition to The Chief, uh, but more specifically on impeachment, is David Stewart's uh, magnificent history uh, of the impeachment trial. And the name of the book is simply Impeachment 
uh, with a long subtitle. It also provides a very intriguing um, uh, introduction to the personalities at the time and frankly the corruption at the time because it's widely believed by historians who studied this, including David Stewart, that corruption was in fact part of that uh, particular saga which was so bitter. Uh, I, I do hope that notwithstanding a an acrimonious start, that uh, Senators McConnell and Schumer, representing their respective caucuses, will be able to find common ground on these uh, pesky procedural issues. I'm not optimistic. It is a hope rather than an expectation. Uh, but that, I think, is so critical. Can we agree, as again was done under Clinton, and I think would have been done under Nixon. Remember, speaking of a bipartisan approach, over 400 members of the House of Representatives voted in favor of the impeachment inquiry of Richard Nixon. 31 Democrats voted in favor of the impeachment inquiry uh, into Bill Clinton. Here, of course, we're off, as I say, in the 21st century, the first of uh, presidential impeachments in this century, may it be the last. Uh, it, we're, we're off to a very poor start with acrimony on both sides and finger pointing and the like. To the Chief Justice, I would say, and I associate myself with what Jones, very far be it for me to give advice to the Chief Justice of the United States. But if I were called, you must give him some advice, I would say, stay above the fray and give every appearance that you are not arrogating power to yourself, but even perhaps to a fault, you're deferring to the views of the United States Senate. Just a quick, very last word, Joan, in addition to your wonderful The Chief and your other great books on Justices O'Connor and Sotomayor and Scalia, what uh, book would you recommend to We the People listeners to learn more about impeachment? Wow. Well, there's, uh, there've been a series of really good books on impeachment out recently. There's um, the uh, new book on impeachment by Brenda Wineapple. Uh, Michael Gerhardt has another version of his book on impeachment out. Uh, he advised um, senators during the Clinton impeachment. So there, there's a lot of uh, good material out there uh, from all quarters, uh, including the interesting one of um, uh, Neil Katyal that's uh, out recently on um just the whole, the, the, you know, more of a political case for impeachment. But uh, I think your listeners can, can easily get a good bi bibliography of uh, political and historical reading on impeachment. Thank you so much, Joan Biskupic and Kenneth Starr, for an illuminating, civil, and uh, historically informed discussion of the Chief Justice and the impeachment trial to come. It's always an honor and a pleasure to have both of you. Joan, Ken, thank you so much for joining Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Dave Stotts and produced by Jackie McDermott. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team. Homework of the week, you heard it, dear We the People friends. What is the next line in Gilbert and Sullivan's Iolanthe after the House of Lords throughout the war did nothing in particular and did it very well? If you send it to me, jrosen at constitutioncenter.org, I will send you a copy of Conversations with RBG. That's how much I love Gilbert and Sullivan. Please rate, review, and subscribe to We the People on Apple Podcasts and recommend the show to friends, colleagues, or anyone everywhere who's hungry for a weekly dose of constitutional debate. And always remember that the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity of people from across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. You can support the mission by becoming a member at constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership or give a donation of any amount to support our work, including this podcast, at constitutioncenter.org forward slash donate. 
On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.